Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. This is in the fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians, and we are moving beyond that original problem, which took us several weeks to get through the scriptures that had to do with the division that was in the church. Paul never really totally departs from that issue, but now he's going to go on to some other issues that are occurring in the church. And in the next section, which will be chapters 5 through 7, there are three other issues in the church that Paul addresses. The first one we'll be dealing with today. Those three issues are sexual immorality in the church, the issue with the church being involved in civil suits to resolve their internal problems, And then he goes to the third one of questions of uh, the issues of marriage and singleness, which they needed some instruction, direction, and correction on. The entire fifth chapter is devoted to the first issue, which is sexual immorality. And I'm going to read just a, a little portion of this before I get into this, and maybe I'll just give you a hint of where I want to go with this today. What I want to be able to apply to us today is how seriously we need to take the issue of taking care of the business in God's church and taking care of it appropriately. It's called uh, church discipline, and it's, it's an ugly thing, but it's a necessary thing, and we cannot shrink from it. And I hope from this sermon today, not only can I encourage you that should we come to the time where we have to exercise church discipline, you will be supportive of God's recommendations for what we do and and not become uh, segmented and uh, fractured over this issue. We want to go into this with a little preparation here with the right frame of mind, not to be afraid of applying church discipline, and for fully, spiritually, emotionally supporting whatever it takes to take proper care of God's church. And that's where, what we want to be able to glean from this today as we study what happened in this Corinthian church. The title of my sermon is An Infected Church, and then the subtitle is Dealing with Sexual Scandal in the Church. That's specifically. But, you know, church discipline can be over any number of problems that could be in the church. Specifically in this Corinthian church, there was sexual scandal. It says, it is actually reported that sexual immorality exists among you, the kind of immorality that is not permitted even among the Gentiles. So that someone who is cohabiting with his father's wife and you're proud Shouldn't you have been deeply sorrowful instead and removed the one who did this from among you? Paul immediately addresses the primary problem. There's two problems with this church. The primary problem is 
that there is sexual immorality being harbored and approved of in the church. The second problem is the church is not taking care of business. Two vital problems. Paul describes this situation as so shocking and so scandalous that he says the godless Gentiles would themselves be shocked at what's going on. So when you have not only the church <clears throat> uh, not taking care of it, but a problem so bad that the goddess Gentiles would take care of this, you've got a problem in the church. Now, one interesting truth that is so relevant to our culture today from the part I've already read comes from that term sexual immorality, which is the way it's translated in this, in this version. But what Paul said, sexual immorality, speaks to our culture today because if the term sexual immorality is an appropriate term, it implies that sexuality has a moral component. This is not news to you here today. But it's something that we have to keep establishing in this sin-sick 21st century that is suggesting there is no moral component to our sexuality. When practiced outside of the boundaries God has set for us, sexual conduct and activity is immoral. That's what the world doesn't get. That's the message that the church must cling to and must defend. The simple truth is rapidly becoming outdated in this culture. Premarital sex is now commonplace. You know that. Divorce, which is a part of this sexual issue, is, is rampant because we're no longer remaining faithful to the one that we have promised ourselves to. Extramarital affairs have become so common that we're rarely shocked and is becoming normalized in our culture. Anybody who is aware of what is being pumped out of Hollywood through your television, through the movies, understand that these issues are treated very casually. That it's not seen as shocking to have extramarital affairs. It's just commonplace. Even the right to practice adult child sex, there is a movement on to try and normalize that and remove laws that, pro that pro prohibit that from happening. And a, a movement is on to remove laws against bestiality. You see, every boundary God has set around sex is targeted by the powers of hell for total eradication. 
Hell doesn't want any boundaries. Doesn't want any rules. And the travesty of this libertine and licentious behavior is that it is fundamentally impossible to find true happiness and true peace if we refuse to obey God's boundaries he has set for us. It's just that simple. People can talk about what's the problem with it, what's the problem if you truly love one another. That problem is very simple. God sets a boundary. If you cross that boundary, you cannot have the kind of peace and joy and happiness God intended for you to have. You are sacrificing all the best things and all the good things that God has for us if we don't stay in the boundaries. It's that simple. So all of the, this gives Paul's words this powerful impact when he says sexual immorality. In other words, something was going on in the church that was outside the boundaries of what God allowed. There is such a thing. We are all accountable. Nobody escapes God's laws. And it doesn't matter how society may normalize some behaviors. It doesn't matter how commonplace and popular behaviors may become. It matters what God has established and ordained and set as boundaries. Those of you who are parents understand a unique perspective about boundaries. You set boundaries for your kids. Not because you think or believe that every time they cross that boundary, they're going to die. You set boundaries because you believe if they stay within those boundaries, they will be the healthiest, they will be the happiest they can be. And the kids want to argue that point. You really think this is going to kill me? You really think this is that bad for you? No, you don't understand. I'm setting boundaries because boundaries are where the happiness and the peace and the joy and the best things in life are found. That's why I set boundaries until the kids get out of from under the control of the parents, and they're going to say, I just wonder what's outside the boundaries. And then if you are smart enough to learn, you become a parent, and you say, I think I'll set boundaries for my kids, but I won't tell them that I didn't like boundaries. And thus, you perpetuate the whole thing over and over and over again. You've got this sin in the church, in the Corinthian church of tolerance, Nobody in the church wanted to address this problem. This man was living with his father's wife. I think there is a consensus among reputable scholars that this was not his mother. We don't know where the mother is, if she's died, what's happened, but his father had another wife. We don't know what happened to the father. We just know that she is now with her former husband's son, and this was not appropriate. It was not appropriate by God's standards. It was not appropriate by Gentile standards. The whole thing was shocking and scandalous. And the church did not deal with it. The man was in the church. I don't know if his live-in stepmother was in the church with him or not. We don't know those details, but the man was there. And not only did the church not address this issue, 
Paul said they're proud. Wonder how they could be proud of this. But the first thing I want to deal with is how they tolerated this sin. The biggest problem today is not what is happening in the world. And we all know how bad a shape the world is in. The problem is what happens in the church. And the bigger problem is when the church refuses to deal with the problems in the church. You see, we are not called to police the ungodly. We can't go and change people who do not profess Jesus Christ to be their personal Savior. We take a stand for our own sake for what we believe is sin and right and wrong. But we can't go stand on the street corner and start pointing at every car that goes by and accuse people of being fornicators and adulterers and drunkards and drug addicts and you filthy people. We just, that's not our calling to go and judge these people, but it is certainly our responsibility within the church to police what's going on in our own backyard. That's where this starts. Now, why was this man tolerated? Once again, we don't have the answers to it, but let's come up with some theories about why the people in the church allowed this man to continue in his behavior and still remain in fellowship in the church. And, and maybe I should explain before I get into that that it's not as though we're supposed to set a filter at the door and make sure that everybody who walks through here is a perfect Christian. That's not at all what this was about. Somehow, this man's presence in the church, he had worked his way into the fabric of that congregation and become a part of its close, intimate fellowship and maybe if we could kind of uh, relate it to what happened today, maybe he had even been given a position. Now, maybe he hadn't. But if we, if we try to relate that, how would that work out in our church? Somebody comes in, and it's not just a matter that they're sitting in our pews. It's not just a matter that they are living the kind of life they shouldn't be living. These people are free to come and go all they want. It's a matter of pulling this kind of a person into our fellowship and calling them brother and sister and pretending like there's no issues in their life that have to be dealt with and excusing their behavior. That's the difference. People will come into our church all the time that have problems. It's not my issue to say you can't come in here. You're not good like we are <laughs> because we're not perfect. But they were allowing this person to become an integrated part of their fellowship and not addressing the problem. So why? Was he rich? Because sometimes people want to overlook the behavior of people if they're rich or they're powerful or they're popular in the church. Was he a prized trophy convert that held some prestigious status in the community? For instance, was this man the mayor? And we're so glad to have the mayor saved and in our church, but if he's wrong, who's going to deal with this? This is an important man. Was it because these people had made up their own definition of sin and righteousness and grace and thus changed the rules of God? Is that why they refused to deal with this? Was it because they considered the special circumstances of this man? And let me just build a scenario that's possible. Okay, this, this man's father married this woman and he was... Uh, 
an abuser, and, and this poor woman was just a victim, and finally he's out of the picture for whatever reason. He deserted her, he left her destitute, and this young man comes along and says, that's not right for my father to treat this woman like this. I'm going to take care of her. And then the church looks at this and says, well, that's an act of charity. He's being a good Christian man about this. And somebody's over there saying, he's not being a good Christian man. He's living with his father's wife. What are you telling me, good Christian? But you see, I have been in the ministry long enough that people try to justify what somebody's do, doing because it looks like it's charitable. It looks like it's loving. It looks like it's caring. Therefore, it's all right. But they're not dealing with the problem. The problem is it's sin. That happens. I've seen it a number of times. Or <clears throat> was the man just so kind and so gentle and so loving in every other aspect that he was held in high esteem within the church? He was a pillar of the church. And we just don't mess with pillars, no matter what they do. Or do we? So the, there's plenty of reasons why we can think why the church may choose not to address someone's sinful action. There's just no excuses for not doing it. And then Paul says, so you're not only failing to take care of business, but you're proud of it. Whatever their justification, whatever one of these may have applied or something I have not even thought about that caused this church to turn a blind eye, receive him into fellowship, refuse to deal with this problem, and everybody surround him and said, you're one of us and we're one of you and we love you and you're forgiven. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe they forgave him before he even asked for forgiveness. In other words, they were being tolerant, but they were not being faithful to taking care of God's house. And, you know, one can almost imagine that these people begin to brag on their church as being that church that is the tolerant church. Our church is a loving church. As a matter of fact, we've got a guy there right now living with his father's wife, and we haven't kicked him out because we are the full faith church of love. Now, can you see how when Paul said, you're proud of it, how demented something was going on in this church? They were proud of the position they had taken. This church took in a social outcast that all other people would have nothing to do with. Even the world would have nothing to do with him. But we brought him in because we are the full faith church of love. We're so proud to be leading the way in practicing love and tolerance. And you know, as you just let your imagination run, that that is a trend that is happening in the church today. Proud of being a loving church, serving a loving God. By this you shall know that you're my disciples, you love one another. All we got to do is love God and love people. And I understand love, I preach love, but when you've got a problem, you have to deal with the problem. And who says that's not love? Paul says, that's what you did. That's what you're doing. Let me tell you what you should have done and how you should have felt. He said you should have been deeply sorrowful. Instead, 
and you should have removed the one who did this from among you. You didn't feel bad, and you didn't remove him. They were tolerant. They were accommodating. They were arrogant. They refused to take proper action, but they hid behind some excuse for their failure, and they had gall to take pride in their stance. First of all, you should have felt sorrowful. The word used here implies that they should have had deep anguish over sin. When it gets to the place where we can look at the hideousness of sin and not feel deep anguish for it, our soul is dying. Sin should bring deep grief upon us, deep anguish. Something is wrong when we fail to feel the deep sorrow when we witness moral failures. And he says, secondly, you should have administered proper discipline. Their deep sorrow should have motivated them. What do we need to do? The easiest thing to do is look the other direction. The easiest thing to do is ignore this. Nobody wants to be the one to stand up and say, we have to do something about this. Everybody would rather just love them through this whole escapade. Now, the appropriate remedial action for this situation is remove the unrepentant man from fellowship. Such an action is never easy to execute in a church. There's a strong possibility there will be those in the congregation who will not have the stomach for this. They will see the response as too harsh, too judgmental, too unloving, and there's the possibility the church will lose even more people over an issue like this. That's the reason I don't mind preaching this at all because I think an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. If we know before we head into the storm what we're supposed to do, it's a whole lot better than trying to do damage control after the fact. Preventive maintenance is always better than damage control. So should the church have to do something like this? The first of all, is I'm saying we should not, we must not, we cannot become divided over this issue if you have to take church discipline. In spite of the fact, almost every time, I would say every time I'm aware of, that anything like this has happened, there have been those people who have been sympathetic to the one upon whom the discipline has to be executed and they have resented the church taking the proper authority over that, so they divide themselves into camps, and they become those who are, are favoring the victim and those who are, of course, supporting the church in what they do. It's just human behavior for people not to understand what does God want us to do. So they become divided, and the church turns into a total wreck. I want us ahead of time to realize that exercising proper discipline within the church is the only right, reasonable, and sane and godly thing that we can do. You can be assured there were people in the Corinthian church who were already siding with this man in question. That's the reason they had a problem. And they would be quick to object to any discipline. They already made it quite clear. They felt simple forgiveness, understanding, and just a little support is all that this man needed. Imagine trying to confront a congregation with the idea 
Now, we need to tell this man he's not welcome to come in here and worship with us anymore as long as he continues to carry on this incestuous relationship. If we had to do that this morning, if we had gathered today and there were an issue and I were to say those exact words to you, friends, we need to tell this man he cannot fellowship this church anymore, some would probably bristle at that and say, Pastor, you can't do that. That's not loving. You're going to tear this church up. I feel sorry for this man. You can't go there, people. This is tough, but it's necessary. And the reason that Paul said that they had to disfellowship this man is because he said, if you do this, you turn him over to Satan, then there's a possibility that when Satan has his way with this man and the destructive powers of sin have their way, that he might be shocked into reality and come back and be restored. But he's not going to be restored as long as you keep covering up for him. That's the point. He'll never feel any conviction. He'll feel like he's been tolerated, been accepted. The sin's okay. I'm still in full fellowship with the church. There are no problems. Because people who are in those kind of positions want to believe everything's okay and they want to surround themselves with good people who will tell them everything is okay. And that salves their conscience. But when the church says, if you continue to behave like this, you cannot be a part of this fellowship. Then suddenly they are shocked into thinking, I've lost everybody that's important to me. I've lost the most important things. I've lost my fellowship with God's people. Uh, I can't even worship with them. What am I going to do now? Well, they've, they've got to make a choice. They've been placed in a position where they are forced to think, either I'm going to quit doing what I'm doing and come back into fellowship with God and with God's people, or I'm going to pursue my own path and call them all wrong, and I'm right. So they have to make a tough decision at that point. You can't guarantee what decision they will make. Paul says if you turn him over, his flesh could be destroyed. At least he'll be on the path to self-destruction because that's what sin does. And some scholars call this the curse death interpretation. In other words, Paul is saying basically you're just going to have to turn him over to the curse of sin. The end result of that is going to be spiritual death for sure, and it's probably not going to be physically very favorable for him as well because you remember whenever Peter cursed Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't live very long after that. As a matter of fact, they fell dead in the church and had to be carried out. Most people are thankful that I don't do that. It's very interesting if you think back over the past few verses in the previous chapters that Paul has told them very clearly, do you not know you are the temple of God? He who destroys this temple, him will God destroy. Do you remember that? And how often people think that he's talking about this temple, it's not talking about the church. You, you church, you congregation, you're the temple of God. Whoever destroys this temple, him will God destroy. It's also quite significant that Paul has just got through telling the Corinthian church in his letter, moreover, it is required in stewards that you be found faithful. You must take care of that which God has put in your control. So with these two principles that Paul has set forth, 
the principle of not letting the temple be destroyed and the principle of being good stewards of what, have been, what has been put in their charge, now he brings those principles over to here saying, this is the temple of God. It must be taken care of. If you do not take care of the temple of God, if the temple of God is allowed to be destroyed, God will destroy those destroyers. Furthermore, you have been given a charge to take care of this, and good stewards are required Required, mandated, must be faithful. And Paul is laying this charge to them. So if you turn them over, that's the only chance that they have of really being shocked into the reality and coming back to repentance. Now, I don't know if any of you have lived through any situations like this. I do not know. I do know that in my years of ministry that when problems that have some exposure in the congregation, that many people are aware of the problem, that in dealing with those problems, invariably the congregation becomes divided. They choose which side they want to support. In all the years that I've been pastoring, I've had very few people come and ask me, Pastor, how can you justify what you are doing? Can you explain to me in any, in any reasonable fashion why this is the right thing to do? Very few people have ever probed. Most of them just make up their mind based on what they see happening and decide I'm either going to be sympathetic to the victim or going to support the church, and that's the end of the game and churches get divided. I have lived through some horrible situations in the church. I know how it tears a church up. Paul said, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast affects the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old yeast so you may be a new batch of dough. You are, in fact, without yeast. Because those of you who are aware with Jewish uh, uh, ways and customs know that the old un, uh, feast uh, of unleavened bread, the Passover feast. Uh, it was unleavened bread because the leaven represented infection. It represented sin. So they had to eat unleavened, unyeasted bread. And Paul refers back to that and makes this application to the church that if you've got a little yeast in the church or a little infection in the church, a little problem in the church, and you don't get it out, you know what yeast does. It just multiplies. It just grows. A bunch of gas. You don't want a bunch of gas in the church. You just don't need this. He said, get the yeast out. Get the man out of the church. Take care of your business. And maybe he'll repent. And he, he warns them about the corruptive Destructive influences of sin in the church. Paul gives us this list of things that the church must be on guard against because it's not just limited to just the case of, just so in case in the future some church has a man who decides to live with his mother's wife, then you'll know what to do. But it's more than that. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I'm going to stop right there because this is the first letter to the Corinthian church. And Paul says in the first letter to the Corinthian church, in the letter I wrote you, 
So you see, there's a letter that Paul wrote them that we don't have. All we have is the fact that he makes reference to a letter. Don't we wish we had it? But we don't. So he says, in this letter I wrote you previously, he said, I told you not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now let me stop right there. We preachers, we suffer from the unfortunate situation of people misunderstanding us. I can say what I say from the pulpit and people will put six different slants on it. I have had people in my office that come in quite irritated and said, you said, no, I did not say that. That's what you thought I said. I have had to go back and play the recording to prove what I said. But that wasn't what you said. That is what I said. That wasn't what you meant. How do you know what I meant? I know what I meant. So Paul writes in this letter and he says, people don't have anything to do with sexually immoral people. And verse 10 says, in no way did I mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and the swindlers and the idolaters, since you would have to go out of the world to get away from them. So when Paul wrote this to the Corinthian church, and says, I don't want you to have anything to do with sexually immoral people. What Paul intended and probably said very clearly was, within the context, if you've got sexually immoral people in the church, do not keep them in the fellowship. You cannot have anything to do with those who are going to compromise the truth of God by their lifestyle. And they read the letter, and they started this rumor that Paul says that we should avoid all these evil people in the world, so don't leave home. And Paul had to write this second letter, which is the first letter, technically, uh, or so titled, and tell them, you people, you misunderstood what I said. I did not mean don't have anything to do with sexually immoral people in the world or greedy people in the world or swindlers in the world or idolaters in the world because the world is full of them and you can't even go to the grocery store if you think that's what I mean. Furthermore, how are you going to win anybody unless you become friends with people who are unregenerate? You might have a person next to you that is a notorious sinner. And the, Paul is by no means trying to say, well, don't have anything to do with that unholy man. No, let your holiness overcome their unholiness. Become their friend. Become their neighbor. Love them. Show them the love of Christ. You can do that. But he said, inside the church is a different story. But now, he says, I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who calls himself a Christian. Now he's very specific. Now I'm going to spell it out. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Anybody who calls themselves a Christian who is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or verbally abusive or a drunkard or a swindler, don't even eat with such a person. What do I have to do with judging those outside? Are you not to judge those inside? But God will judge those outside. So, remove the evil person from among you. Now, at this point, it might be tempting to think that whenever Paul said, don't even eat with them, that your responsibility now, biblically, is if there's somebody in the church that has been expelled from the church because of their rebellious behavior, that you are prohibited by Scripture from even eating a hamburger at McDonald's with this person. You can't eat with them. But that's not what Paul is saying. It was probably within the context, 
even of the, uh, the, the feasts that they had, which were known to us as uh, the Lord's Supper. They'd come together, they'd have a big feast. We don't get a feast. We, we get a cracker and a little cup of juice, and I'm starved by the time I get done. And the cracker and the juice don't get it physically. Now, the old church, they did it right. They put on a feast, and then they had the Lord's Supper there, and they passed the cup and the bread. Paul said uh, they shouldn't be a part of the fellowship. They shouldn't be a part of your feast. But here's what he's really saying is no matter what you do with this person, they should not be a part of your closest intimate fellowship under any circumstances. You could meet these people. You could dine with them in a casual atmosphere. But you cannot go around the disciplinary actions of the church and say, I'm going to ignore what the church has done. I'm going to ignore what the pastor said. I'm going to ignore what the Bible says. And I'm going to make this person my dearest, closest friend and love them back into the kingdom. No, you're not. You can be their friend. You can be there for them when they need you. But if you take them into your closest inner circle, you are just trying to cancel out the effects of putting them out, the, the curse death thing, and let Satan have their way until they're so miserable that the only answer they have is to come back to God and repent. So don't you be snuggling up to these people and trying to be their buddy-buddy. It's not going to work. Furthermore, he who destroys the church, him will God destroy you. You've got to be very careful about that. So it's not just a matter of shunning. Paul wasn't talking about shunning. Talking about avoiding that deep personal fellowship that is only reserved for the closest people to you, the dearest. You hope to bring them into that fellowship someday, but you've got to win them in. But Paul says you have a responsibility to take care of church business. He said you, you're not to judge the outside, the, the world outside the church. Just judge the people in the church. Because, you know, if the church becomes like the world, we become ineffective. We have no power. We have no authority. Now, yes, we're composed of flawed people, but we ought to all work together towards the agreement that there are certain standards that we have to uphold. Now, if somebody fails, we can love them. We can forgive them. But if somebody persists in living outside of the rules that God has set, they will not change their lifestyle. They want you to accept them just like they are. That's what we're talking about. You cannot embrace. You cannot endorse. If the church refuses to police its own community, the church will become a spiritual mess. And I'm telling you people, church discipline is not easy. It just doesn't set well with everybody. We're not talking about purging the church of imperfect people or I wouldn't be here. We're not talking about disfellowshipping people who are merely struggling with spiritual battles. And there are people here today, you're struggling with spiritual battles. I'm, I'm not saying you're not welcome here. God's not saying you're not welcome here. We want to be your support group. We want to help you. We want to help you overcome. It's an attitude. If you want help, we're going to help. But if you want us to come where you are and accept you just like you are and you don't want to change, we've got a problem. We're not here to approve of ungodliness. We're here to help you walk away from ungodliness. 
We're talking about willful rebels. We're talking about those who transgress moral boundaries with no remorse. We're talking about those who bring sin and compromise into the church and try to normalize it and make it acceptable and make everybody approve of them just as they are. And this describes what is happening in the 21st century church as people are bringing their own perverted lifestyles into the church and say, I'm not here to change. I'm here to ask you to accept me just like I am. Paul's warning is clear. We're the stewards. We must be faithful. Now, folks, here's what I have to say. I've really concluded with my sermon. These are just my off-the-cuff remarks. We have full sympathy for anybody who is struggling in their life with sin in, in any measure. We, we have full sympathy with those who who fail, who make mistakes. I've made a number of mistakes in my life. I, I know what it is to fail. But I also know that there may come a time when somebody is living in open rebellion and the church has to have the fortitude and the desire to be able to show the tough love. It's kind of the term we use. We love you but you cannot force yourself into our midst and try and normalize what is wrong. If you want to come repent, we'll pray for you. If you want us to join you, we're not going to join you because he who destroys the church, him will God destroy.